This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a black and Asian perspective. Barton Network is where UK black and Asian therapists share their passion and their expertise. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of black and Asian people in the UK. Over the next few months, I'll be presenting UK black and Asian therapists sharing their thinking and psychological concepts so as to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their black and Asian clients. This is the fourth of eight podcasts where I'll present recordings of therapists who have given talks at Barton conferences over the years. The last podcast presented psychoanalyst Farkri Davids, who spoke very powerfully at the 2012 Barton conference about how internal racism works. The speaker for this podcast is Dr Aileen Allen. She also spoke at the 2012 Barton conference. Dr. Aileen Allen is a psychotherapist and clinical supervisor in private practice. She consults to organisations on issues of difference and diversity in the workplace and education. Her academic career has included lectureships at several London colleges and universities, including the University of London Goldsmiths College, for over eight years. Aileen is the author of several book chapters and journal papers exploring themes on black and white dynamics and the ubiquitous emotion of shame ever present in black identity wounding. In her talk, Aileen is speaking about the work of transcending intergenerational trauma. She argues that when the world thinks of the Jewish experience today, it's hard to separate it from the Holocaust, and in the same way, the black experience today cannot be separated from the systematic dehumanization of African slaves. She eloquently reminds us to bring to mind the original trauma and bring it back into the general discourse of racism. She says quite rightly that there is a feeling that slavery has been dealt with, that it happened a long time ago, but as we know, with all kinds of trauma, we have a dysfunctional relationship with the traumatizing other which gets passed on through the generations. Aileen introduces us to a model she's developed called the cycle of events, which acts as a guide towards the emergence of the true self. The cycle of events can be downloaded from the Barton podcast page. Also during her talk, Aileen refers to an image of the Prime Minister of Jamaica, Portia Simpson Miller, welcoming Prince Harry during his Silver Jubilee visit to Jamaica in March 2012. This image can also be viewed from the Barton podcast page. Here is Dr Aileen Allen. Okay, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. This is my first uh, experience of the Barton conference. I've never been to one of these, even though, as Eugene said, I've facilitated some of the workshops, uh, some training, uh, not so long ago. And, and the reason I'm pleased is that I'm seeing faces that I know uh, that I haven't seen for many years. And, and I know some of you perhaps know a little bit of what I've written, uh, some of the papers that I've written. So it's an absolute delight to be here. 
I am very pleased about this title, Giving Voice to the Silent Impact of Racism, because I think it's one that uh, needs more space for continued dialogue. My particular slant on the topic is looking at the work of transcending intergenerational trauma. And uh, I've taken this, some of you may be familiar with elements of what I'm going to be talking about, because you may have seen it in one or two of my papers, but I've chosen this topic because I feel that it sits very, very neatly in the whole schema. Uh, intergenerational trauma stemming from racism and the oppression of, of a people is pernicious and destructive. This phenomena forces a collective uh, to defy what has been done to its members as victims. But as John Paul Sartre uh, says, or uh, he quotes, Freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. In addressing the theme of my talk, uh, the work of transcending intergenerational trauma, I hope to bring to our awareness ongoing challenges for black people in the work of transcending uh, transgenerational healing. And from here on, I will use the term black to include people of known African heritage, and those who can be discriminated because of the color of their skin, and that it will include uh, all peoples within the Asian Indian groups, all peoples. Even though our histories are very, very different, the tenets of what I'm going to be offering can apply to all of us, all of us. But I've chosen to speak about what I know and I have well, that I hold dear, that I know best and I hold dear. That doesn't mean that I'm excluding other black groups. To start at the beginning, the systematic dehumanization of African slaves was the initial trauma. And since that time, generations of our descendants have borne the scars. Black people of all cultural and ethnic persuasions have not been spared the effects of this collective malady. And therefore, we have to face the fact that real recovery from this ongoing trauma is to engage with the work that is from within. We have to start with ourselves. The work of transcending intergenerational trauma must start within us as individuals and within our distinctive communities. For uh, we must foresee to our own healing, and, and that's where we start. No other person or group can do another person's work. We have to do that work ourselves. My choice to address this day, this theme, from this angle is based on my firm belief that a lot more can be gained, or a lot more is to be gained, from us looking at ourselves and understanding how our lives have been shaped by what we have inherited and internalized from the past. My view is that the consequences of this inheritance, the consequences are still being acted out, as well as acted in, in the present time. There's an acting out, and there's an acting in, in the present time. I'm sure we will all agree 
that despite huge advancements in British society to deal with the negative and damaging effects of racism, its impact continues to be felt in, albeit in more subtle ways. Racism is ever-present, is an ever-present ever experience for black people in this society. There is no doubt about that, absolutely no doubt. It's there and you'll hear it from each other as we engage uh, in conversation today and from the other speakers. But as George Back says, uh, he's a, an acclaimed American writer of self-help books, the inner enemy is as much a formidable foe as the most manipulative or oppressive of associates. The inner enemy is as much a formidable foe as the most manipulative of, uh, manipulative of, of associates, of oppressive associates. I refer to this inner enemy as the internal oppressor, and that's where the real battleground is, the internal oppressor. Just to, just to say a few things about the internal oppressor, because this theme will come up again and again. The internal oppressor is that part of the self, ourself, that carries around historical and intergenerational baggage that has the propensity to influence our present-day functioning. It is that part of the ego structure that functions as an inhibitor and an internal adversary. It is the enemy within, the internal oppressor. It is the enemy within. Bach's statement should remind us that it is equally important to examine what we as black people bring to the table when we are caught up in what I call the cultural enmeshment. I really think we need to look at ourselves and what we've been continually do that. If we continually look out, I think we will be ignoring a very important part of this healing process. And that's where my passion lies at the moment. I have chosen the cycle of events, uh, and I, I just want to put this up, cultural enmeshment, because you might just want to take these little sound bites down and look them up yourselves. Enmeshment, um, which is, almost a sort of a codependency, a codependency, a dependency on the other. One can't do without the other. Whites can't do without blacks. Blacks can't do without whites. There's an, in, we are a strange, we make strange bedfellows, black and white dynamics. I've chosen a representative image entitled The Cycle of Events, that's the paper you have in front of you, uh, to help to highlight the mechanisms of cultural enmeshment and its effects. I will elaborate each stage of the cycle to bear out or to lay bare the psychotherapeutic issues involved and the processes necessary for bringing about intergenerational healing. And uh, because this representation will focus mainly on black-white dynamics, I trust that the cycle of events will help to capture the unique relationship and attachment issues that exist between black and white peoples. I actually did this or, or, or came up with this the idea of the cycle of events for my masters, uh, which I did in 1992. 
and I adapted in 2009, and it still has relevance. It still has relevance. This cycle of events is what I see as the transgenerational transmission of trauma. It's what I see in the transgenerational transmission of trauma, what has been passed down and what we are still acting out in a very modern way. Let's go to the first part of this cycle. The first stage suggests that a legacy of pain has been passed down by the generations uh, through our parents and ancestors. And the question is, what is this legacy of pain and what has been passed down? As I see it, as I said, the initial trauma for black people was the systematic dehumanization of African slaves. And I must re offer a reminder at this juncture that black people's existence did not start with slavery. <laughs> <laughs> we know for certain that scientific techniques ranging from fossil identification, radiocarbon dating, and analysis of DNA, which is the human genetic blueprint passed down from one generation to the next, all support the notion that Africa, and, particular, and in particular the eastern and southern regions, is the cradle of mankind. We know that for sure. There's no argument about this. Some of you may remember uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu um, in his welcome to the world's football teams at the 19 FIFA World Cup in South Africa two years ago, where he said, you've all come home. <laughs> and his emphasis on home is, was to really say, you've, co you've come back to where civilization was born. It was very poignant, wasn't it? So back to this legacy of pain and what's been passed on. The wide-scale human tragedy of slavery inevitably reminds us of terrible atrocities that were carried out on a wide industrial scale by mainly enlightened people with high civil values for their own. However, when it came to the African, these values had neither place nor relevance. Until the 19th century, slavery was considered an acceptable economic system in Britain and many other countries in Europe. It was condoned by politicians and businessmen, and even scientists and churches justified the legitimacy of this practice, which we recognize as morally reprehensible. I believe, I believe that it is the discomfort that comes from such incongruously different attitudes towards peoples that makes the trauma so painful for black people. I recall a client asking in bewilderment as she spoke about her very painful experiences of blatant racism, her bewilderment came out in a cry. Why is it we black people always seem to be at the bottom of everything? Why does our skin color evoke such harsh and ugly reactions? I mean, she asked this in total bewilderment, as if there was a, a rational answer. And we know there isn't a rational answer because racism is irrational. I mean, I couldn't give her a rational answer to soothe that 
pain. But, you know, we ask that question around the kitchen table. Why does our skin color evoke so, such strong reactions? The legacy of pain and anger about our past is never too far away from consciousness. For some of us, this legacy, this legacy of pain, makes for an attachment with our past. It makes for an avoidant and a detached one. Because to remember is to keep alive what is unbearable. For others, this, this painful history is constantly, even automatically remembered and kept alive, thus creating an enmeshment, an over-attachment with the past that can cause historical wounds to be continually opened up in the present. Historical wounds do compound our present-day wounds. They do compound them. I think it is this reopening and the going over of these traumatic historical imprints that make black identity wounding an ongoing process of intergenerational trauma. This conference provides a welcome opportunity for us to explore the silent impact of racism. However, I do feel there is still shyness, one could even say reluctance to include the theme of slavery and black oppression within the discourse. This subject is usually dismissed with comments like, slavery is something that happened a long time ago. Or, we can't keep looking backwards, we must look forwards. Or, this might come from white individuals, I don't want to be made feel, to feel guilty for something I didn't do. This is the, these are common responses, and you, you know them, you've heard them. All of these comments are, responses are valid, I must say, but I do believe this lack of attention and detachment from these key areas demean the dreadful issue in a way that, for example, the Holocaust is not demeaned. The Holocaust, everyone knows, is not just an issue for Jews. It is something that defines everyone's humanity. You cannot properly be a human being without knowing something about this probably the most awesome crime ever committed in world history. This is also true of African slavery, but we relate to it differently, very differently. Even though it's everyone's shame and everyone's loss, this perhaps second most terrible crime is allowed to be forgotten in a way that I believe creates an added trauma for black people to endure on our own. From an analytic, attachment-based standpoint, there is no difference, as I see it, in the black-white relationship and that of, say, the adult client in therapy whose inner child forever yearns for the mother's show of love and the mother's apology for all the emotional neglect suffered I, I don't see any difference in, you know, the parent-child and the black-white relationship uh, dynamics. I see, I see very little difference. And this recent headline and picture tells of a similar dynamic, the parent-child, that is still present in black-white dynamics. Very recently, the Jamaican Prime Minister, Portia, lovely name, Portia Simpson-Miller, 
said in her speech in welcoming Prince Harry to Jamaica, she said she wants Britain to apologize for, quotes, wicked and brutal slavery. She wants that apology, but in the brackets, but still can't resist giving him a hug. And what a hug. What a hug. What a hug. I mean, this, this was just, what, a month ago, three weeks ago? And here is somebody of eminent stature still talking about an apology. Still talking about an apology. You know, I, many of us work with clients in the consulting room who are, they might be 40, even 50, and still looking for an apology from mom or dad just to put their arms around them and to say, you know, son or daughter, I'm sorry for what has happened to you. I wish things could have been different. Just that waiting. And those who don't get it still continue to wait and hope. They live and wait and hope. And I think there is something of that expectation in black-white dynamics. I mean, here it is. She's asking for it. She ain't going to get it, but she's asking for it. She's asking for that apology, but she can transcend that and still greet a representative in a most welcoming way. I, 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 I couldn't stop looking at this photo. There's so much in it, so much in it. The reason I, I chose this, and because it's recent, it's contemporary, I'm talking about slavery, the past, I'm trying to show its impact running through right into the present and some of the implications. Just to go back to the picture, what we see is a powerful figurehead who speaks on behalf of a former colony uh, and whose expectations are to have a heartfelt uh, apology and a mission of guilt in order to achieve some kind of closure of the original wound from slavery. African slavery as a critical reference point from which to understand intergenerational trauma and black identity wounding is not an indulgence, but a very a clear way of giving something important a very special recognition. It should be part of our minds and memories, not to haunt us, not to disable us, but to be known and lived and accepted as one of the greatest facts that has formed all of us. But I think it is harder for black people to do this if we feel the rest of the world is not with us. What an anguish it must be first to carry a cultural burden and then to carry the further burden of not being granted recognition. I believe it is this pain, this deep psychic pain that most, if not every, black person carries knowingly and unknowingly inside them. The world's forgetfulness, its neglect of something so huge, increases the anguish and in turn keeps something of the old wound alive within the wronged. Being forgotten creates a sense of not being properly noticed and valued, and this leads to all kinds of damaging inward turning, a stubborn dwelling on the old wounds so as not to have it forgotten. I believe it is the internalizing of these deep-seated wounds which entangle black people in an uncreative engagement with an acting in and an acting out 
of our past. I am suggesting, therefore, that it is this trauma of carrying alone something so monumentally significant that makes it difficult to let go of the past. I'm also suggesting that it is this trauma that interferes consciously and unconsciously with black people's cell structure and ultimately contributes to difficulties in present day functioning. And I'm further suggesting that it is this legacy of pain held by our parents and our ancestors that is perpetually passed down and across the generations. Now, the, the second stage of the cycle of events indicate that over the generations, the legacy of this painful ancestral baggage continued uh, to contribute to unconscious preoccupations uh, with the white other. And I believe this has led to very complex attachment and relationship patterns that now exist between black and white people. Uh, two notable uh, uh, writers, Naeem Akbar and Joy DeGru Leary, um, conceptualize the internal holding on to this ancestral baggage as a sort of a post-traumatic syndrome. Their theory suggests that centuries of painful history of slavery, followed by systemic racism and oppression have resulted in multi-generational adaptive behaviors, some of which have been positive and reflective of resilience, and others that are detrimental and destructive. That's what they talk about post-traumatic, I've put in brackets, slave syndrome. And those are the two writers. And there are several others who support them. I will highlight a few of these patterns and behaviors from a psychological perspective. However, uh, before I launch into this area, I must acknowledge at this juncture that although this presentation seems to be highlighting the limiting and unhealthy aspects of black identity structure as a way of understanding the impact of intergenerational trauma, these elements are by no means the whole of the black makeup. Black peoples of the black diaspora are recognized the world over for their innate ability to be resourceful and resilient, even in the most dire of circumstances. We have only to think of war-torn Africa, for example, to witness how its peoples battle through repeated natural and man-made disasters and come out the other end. Many have mastered the amazing art of being resilient, although battle-weary by life circumstances. Black people are still able to work well, to play well, to love well, and to expect well. Many of us have moved from positions of mere surviving to thriving, and countless others are aware of the fact that hurt people who hurt others must seek out opportunities to move away from the position of victim to that of victors. These aren't trendy sound bites. There are celebrated aspects of black life that sometimes can easily be forgotten in discourses like these. But all that said and done, uh, I just want to go back to the second stage, and I realize I'm running out of time. The, uh, the third stage of this uh, uh, cycle of events, the preoccupation uh, with the white other, can lead to internalization of white as superego, you can internalize whiteness in such a way that it becomes the superego. 
you can see that there, uh, in the way sometimes we interact, there's that longing for the other, the, the envy, the envy for the other. And you see that in a whole lot of modern sort of, um, I would say, contemporary ways, you know, even down to uh, small things like uh, people being accused of lightening their skin or asking for the... Um, pictures uh, to be lightened, the, the Beyonce sort of saga um, about her pictures being lightened. These are, these are tiny little elements, but they're still, they still have a connection somewhere back there, back there. The denigration of the other, the way sometimes we find it hard to get together uh, as, as a black group and stay together, there's always that kind of suspicion of the other and the denigration of the other. Um, we strive for otherness, uh, sometimes forgetting our authentic, the, authentic or the authentic nature of ourselves because we're striving for otherness. And all that leads to the splitting of the ego, the, a, a sense of not being sort of integrated within the self. I, I've kind of, kind of skimmed that. There's a lot more to be said there. And you can hear a number of all of this. Uh, you can hear this being expressed in some of these sayings. You've got to work twice as hard to prove your worth to white people. We can't afford to wash our dirty linen in public. That's like giving white people ammunition. We must stick together. Uh, you need to play, play them at their own game. And that was a recent, wasn't that a, a tweet from Diane Abbott? Westminster first black woman MP just about a couple of uh, months ago, eight weeks ago. Actual quotes, you need to play them at their own game or, or else, or else. That was a tweet from Diane Abbott just recently. So what I'm actually saying is that this isn't just about the past. This is still being played out in the present. It's still with us, still with us. She's also said, white people love playing divide and rule. That was what she also said. White people love playing divide and rule. So in these very fairly common and familiar scripts, one can hear and detect positions from which self-observation and self-reflections are made. They are clearly in relation to the white other. And, and, and I'm sure you can think of countless examples where the object um, that we are in battle with is uh, still with the white other. I'm going to move, I'm going to skip some bits and move on. The consequences of all of this is that I do feel it leads to a perpetuate, uh, an, in, the intergenerational trauma uh, is integrated and woven into the psyche of the new generations. There, the perpetuation of splits continue, and sometimes we see paranoid schizoid processes and neuroses. Now, perhaps I should say a little bit about that, uh, because not everyone might be uh, familiar with that sort of language. But I think what that uh, particular area is referring to is that 
at some level, we, we don't feel that we are functioning from a really centered sense of self. We're always looking out and trying to relate to the other. We're not relating to ourselves. The neuroses could be uh, issues around being hypervigilant. Hypervigilance is something I see quite a lot in private practice in when black workers, black clients are talking about their experiences in the workplace where you have predominantly white staff, a sort of a hypervigilance, a looking out for a, almost a kind of a paranoia that your actions are going to be interpreted in a negative way. So uh, th th there's, there are lots of problems, lots of problems here. And it's healthy paranoia is what is the name given to these behavior patterns by William Greer and, and Price Cobbs. They talk about healthy, healthy paranoia because uh, they reckon that this kind of hypervigilance is evident, it's necessary uh, for one's survival uh, in these situations. These areas present false self-structures and all their traits, all their traits. A false self-structure is not being your true self. It's always in relation or reaction to the other. And I'm saying that through the process of all kinds of therapy, it doesn't have to be talk therapies, it could be uh, other therapies, whatever you choose to do, reading uh, in a way that brings knowledge. Uh, it could be all forms of therapy. Uh, we can work towards being more actional, which is a Franz Fanon a Franz Fanon's uh, term, a term he, he uses to describe uh, difficulties in exercising full self-agency, personal entitlements, and, and as he said, all our God-given human rights. Um, these difficulties in striving for being actional are currently seen in modern-day Britain. Uh, we, when we look at the increased black-on-black -black crime or violence, the proliferation of the knife crime, uh, black children underachieving in school, the damaging impact of absent fathers in the home, and higher numbers still of single parents struggling in, in an unsupported way in our society are just a few of the related problems that arise out of this cultural malady. So, there's quite a lot here to really think about and to work through in various ways, in our own way, in our own communities. But here are a few points uh, in the area of healing. There's a need to repair so that the emergence of the true black self emerges. And I know people who are very analytical will have problems with Winnicott's true and false self theory. Some people hate it, uh, some people uh, embrace it. Uh, but when I talk about the true self, it's in relation to the neurotic self that is always acting out, acting in, and always with, with white, a superego, to really rid ourselves of that uh, so that we can sort of move towards the individuation process and have a true integration of all our aspects of ourself. Um, reparation at the individual level, I believe, can be helped by understanding this cycle of events, having a deep understanding of it, 
its subtle and not so subtle workings, we can release unacknowledged pain and reframe the resulting more often unconscious responses in order to transcend the trauma. The emergence of the true black potential, I believe this process of repairing and healing can hopefully lead to the individuation process, as I said, that is a process of fully becoming ourselves. And the last term, that term, state of grace, is a term I've chosen to describe the process of tuning out, tuning out expressions of black rage and pain and delighting in our distinctive hybrid vigor. We do have a distinct hybrid vigor, which is different from other groups. So just to recap, in the cycle of events, I have suggested that through the generations, it was possible for us as black people to perpetuate certain false self-structures, false self-traits, by carrying around internalized negative patterns of cognition about ourselves in relation to the white other. I'm also suggesting that this complex internal process has led to internal disturbances and false self-traits. The relevance of the false self concept thus becomes an important construct in understanding our struggle for individuation and healthy negotiations in predominantly white settings. And finally, I'm arguing that it is, as it is not possible to erase our history from our identity, its facts and the consequences should serve as crucial lessons from which we should learn to be more progressive in our creative endeavors and in our relationship with each other. And I want to end with a quote from Jung. And I think this is such a poignant quote. Jung says in his writings of 1964, he says, if you find the psychic wound in an individual or a people, there you also find their path to consciousness. If you find the psychic wound in an individual or a people, there you also find the path to consciousness. And I guess what I've been suggesting in this talk is that where that psychic wound is, is in the effects of that intergenerational trauma, which continue, continue to be passed down the generations. So at some point, we'll have to break that cycle, and we are the ones to help to do that, because we are the generation who will pass it down to the next generation. What I think would be quite useful is to look at ways in which that's being played out in yourselves, in your community, in your household, and what your offsprings might be picking up. So I think that that would be a very good note to end. Thank you. That was Dr. Aileen Allen giving a talk on transcending intergenerational trauma at the 2012 Barton Conference. To find out more about Barton, please visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk. It would be good to hear from you. You can email me at eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can leave your thoughts on the Barton podcast page. I hope you can join me for the next podcast when I will be presenting a recorded talk from psychotherapist Narendra Kaval. 
who explores what happens to the collective curiosity of the therapy profession around the area of race. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>